in the fashion industry, it, it is a bit of a cliche to be a gay man in fashion. And that was my first obstacle was getting over that and just being like, whatever, it's fine. And part of it was probably some internalized homophobia and some internalized, you know, uh, desire to not be perceived as femme because that was the reason I was bullied because I was perceived as femme when I was a kid. But I always wonder like, who would I have been if my femme attributes were celebrated and encouraged rather than shut down and, and frightened? Hi, I'm Elliot Knight. This episode, we are diving into fashion and reality TV in a huge think tank. Welcome to The Open Up. Thank you for being here. Welcome back. Welcome if it's your first time. Thrilled to have you here back on The Open Up Podcast. A huge episode today. Get ready to learn a lot because we are diving into two different industries today. Behind the scenes of the fashion industry and reality TV. The artist that you'll be hearing from in today's episode is hugely accomplished. He is a fashion entrepreneur and an author and an educator and a vegan cheese monger and an all-round brilliant mind. And with him, we really dive deep into the big themes surrounding fashion and reality TV and the impact that they have on us as a society and how they fill their title of entertainment and where they could probably do a bit better. I am thrilled that this is another unofficial TED Talk episode. There is so much to learn and a lot of the specifics you might have heard up to this point in season one really get laid into the bigger questions that we should be asking of the entertainment industry. Here's the answer of our guest today when I asked him how he identifies. My identity, I feel like, is evolving. I definitely... I'm queer, I'm vegan, I'm Jewish, I'm masculine presenting, I identify, you know, as a, I'm a cis man, but I think that there's always this battle going on between how I want to be perceived, how I perceive myself, how others perceive me, and is there, is there a place where all of that can happily sit together? And I think that for most people, no. <laughs> Joshua Catcher, who also goes by titles such as Menswear Brand of the Year 2016 and Most Influential Designer of 2015, awarded by Peter. He is the founder of ethically made fashion brand Brave Gentleman, which is how he and I met. I was lucky enough to be invited to be a part of a campaign for his brand. He's also an educator. He lectures. He's a vegan cheesemonger and co-founded his company Rind in 2017. Look out for that. Josh is an all-round, wonderful, caring, compassionate, and motivated human being. He loves to get things done, and he's driven by a purpose to actualize his vision of a much better world in all the ways that he can. And in this episode, he wants to share that journey and that vision with you. Josh and I talk about body composition and appearance as an armor to both protect us from and help us fit into the world around us. We talk about the power and fear of femininity. We ultimately discuss how even fashion is a tool for social justice and how we're allowed and expected to identify and express ourselves through it. The boundaries of luxury fashion standing in the way of true innovation. 
and the compassion fashion revolution that Josh has long been on the forefront of. And leading up to talking about fashion, we discussed Josh's experience working in reality TV. He was a field producer, which he told me is an every person for every role that you do. You're the camera operator, you're the producer, you're the director, you're doing documents and paperwork. Basically a very stressful job on which he did learn a lot about how TV works and what its goals and aims are, or at least seem to be. As well as a reality show that Josh was almost the host of and the story of what happened there. Ultimately, Josh helps us open our minds to look beyond the walls that have been set up for us in these industries, to dare to dream and achieve things that we're told we shouldn't. He encourages you to not just be a consumer, but be a participant in the industries that you engage in, and why he believes gender-neutral fashion is the future. One little technical thing just to make you aware of, right after Josh and I start talking about fashion, we did have a little interruption. We had to have a microphone change. So the audio quality changes. Nothing's wrong with your device. You're all good. Just so you know that everything is as it's meant to be. I'm so glad that you're here for it. And thank you for being here to listen to what Josh has kindly offered up. I will catch you on the other side. This is episode six, fashion and TV with the inspiring Joshua Catcher. Growing up and feeling like I was an outsider, not because I identified as an outsider, but because others identified me as an outsider. And whether that was microaggressions of anti-Semitism, like, you know, having somebody throw pennies at me and tell me to like go chase them or, you know, somebody, I remember this very, this very viscerally in one of my elementary school classes, this one kid just woke up to me and he goes, Josh, the Jew. And I was like, what? Like, okay, Paul, the Christian, like, what, how is that any, how is that any different than, you know, I didn't realize right. as a child, you don't realize that you're a member of a, a hated group or a, or a targeted minority until others kind of make you aware of that in a way that's kind of scary. And so I think that, um, you know, I, I started realizing that I was an outsider. I was perceived as feminine. I was perceived as different. And so I, I went inside and I started, okay, I'm, I'm different. How can I, how can I be empowered by this difference? I don't think I had that rational thought of how can I be empowered by this, but I think you just naturally in trying to adapt you look for and reach for places of, of comfort and empowerment. Is there an element of what you do now, especially in fashion, that serves to provide for that same space of people needing comfort? I've, I've lived my life really feeding that desire for changing the world. And I think that it can sound like a cliche, I want to change the world. But I really took that notion seriously. And I think that I realized I realized it may be younger than some other people do, but I realized that the world, it's not something that we can just take for granted. It's, it's made up of decisions that people are making and you can, you can interject and you can intervene and you can have influence over those individuals who are making decisions. You can be one of those individuals who are making decisions. And 
I never saw anything, whether it was the fashion industry, whether it was the food industry, I never saw any of that as something that had to be the way it is. Everything's malleable. Everything's changeable. When I gravitated towards um, art and uh, and culture and creativity, those it was always a means to 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 speak in a language that people responded to, that people were drawn to. And I don't want to just draw people in for the sake of drawing them in. I want to draw them in because then I want to tell them something. And that, that has always been the function of why I've been drawn to, to the creative industries. You know, I, I was a sculptor. I am a fashion designer. I, I paint. I, I, went to, I went to school for, you know, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I went to school for video art. I've been in television. And um, all of those industries, it's a way of communicating. It's a way of gathering people and showing them something and saying something. Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad someone else has said it unprompted by me so people don't think I'm pushing an agenda <laughs> solely for myself. Stop forcing me to say this. <laughs> Why did you email me this five minutes before we recorded? <laughs> but it is, it's this culture of, it's what you said, just showing for showing's sake and how that is kind of taking over as an energy for entertainment Mm -hmm. and I just think that's such a wasted opportunity to see entertainment as that because now more than ever or just as much as any time it's so important to treat our mediums of entertainment as tools of communication and education and make sure that we're we're putting truthful messages in them and not just one-sided not with an agenda but just to basically do what we're trying to do here and be like, hey, we're not telling you what to think, but we are telling you the truths of experiences that you probably don't know about because yeah. no one else in the mainstream is interested in talking about them. Yeah, and I think the, I think the challenge is how do we do it in a way that captures people's imagination, that keeps people's attention, that empowers people to feel like they can do something, it, you know, it's one thing to be, it's one thing to be right. I could lay out, you know, all the reasons why somebody should go vegan or uh, not buy from companies that use sweatshops or, um, you know, support, uh, support whatever social justice movement. I could lay out those reasons, but being right is, is very different than being effective. We have this tendency to believe that because we're right, it's just going to naturally work out. I think that's a a result of some forms of storytelling where we're taught that good wins out in the end, no matter what. And that I think is a dangerous idea because good does not always win. And just because you're on the right side doesn't mean you're going to effectively reach people. And so then the question becomes, how do we take these right ideas or, or just, or, you know, empowering ideas and format them and package them in a way that's going to reach people who aren't seeking them out. Right. Because you don't need to preach to the choir. You don't need to be in an echo chamber or a bubble. You need to be able to reach people who are intentionally avoiding these ideas or who are so caught up in something else that they just don't see it. 
when I worked in reality TV, I was working mostly at MTV. And this was sort of in the heyday of reality shows. My super sweet 16, teen mom, 16 and pregnant, engaged and underage. These shows that would focus in on young people in, in life crises. And um, I, I, guess I, I, I guess the one exception to that is my super sweet 16. That was not a crisis. That was a total, that was just a show that was, <laughs> it was a exploration celebration of privilege really. Mm. When you look at really early reality shows like The, the Real World, you know, the first season of The Real World, I think that that had some really positive impacts. They took several people from very different walks of life and they made them live together and have to confront their own biases. And that happened on, um, on TV where people could see those biases confronted. And there were, you know, there were out gay people who were HIV positive on the show. There were religious Mormons on the show. There were um, people who, who would never otherwise live together. And it was this little social experiment. And I think over time, what they found was that the things that, the things that kept the most viewers ended up being the things that they would continue to dig deeper into and deeper into. And eventually you get shows like, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians Mm -hmm. where it really isn't about any social issue. (laughs) It's, it's, it's just, it's candy. It's um, right. That's all it is. Right. I'm so happy. We're actually talking specifically about reality TV because I, I don't really watch it apart from love Island. I've watched one season of Love Island under duress. <laughs> I watch I it sometimes. Add. I watch Drag Race. I, yes. You know. And I, I get how it's, of course, it's it's addictive and fascinating and it is entertaining and it's great. And, you know, something like Drag Race is amazing because it's entertainment, but it's also showcasing a whole community of people who have, have been so tucked away and hidden and discriminated against for so yes. long and continue to be. Uh, and allowing that 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 diverse truth to have life and to have room and space to breathe and be celebrated. And I am all for that. I, for me, that's my favorite kind of reality TV because it's, it, it has function even no matter what it really does. If you'll focus specifically and intentionally on a diverse community, on a discriminated community or identity or group of people, then just by giving it visibility, especially in a country like America with such a broad and wide audience, uh, with so many different realities and experiences, it only serves to help, if it's truthful, if it's truthful, Hmm. it only serves to help those people in the world have a space in the room to be a part of conversations, for their realities to be a part of other people's perspectives of the world, and hopefully, be treated with more dignity and respect and validity, just like we treat other things that we're already familiar with in our own lives. What do you think a, a, a TV or entertainment industry would look like if, if money had nothing to do with it? I can only imagine better. Uh, just from my experiences of people's justifications for certain decisions or certain uh, lack of inclusivity or visibility, it's it, the argument... From the very beginning of my career as an actor, often the number of times I've heard, oh, that's too niche. Even just talking about myself, 
um, I May Destroy You is a recent series that, you know, has... I love that show. Yes, incredible show, incredible themes, incredible focuses, very well performed and written. Michaela Cole's incredible. That is a story that I am sure, and stories just like that I know, will often be described as niche and too niche to even be made or funded because we're not going to be able to make enough profit off of it, we don't think. Mm. It's only as valuable as it is, uh, as it will fill our pockets with money. And that's the only kind of value that most people most of the time either focus on or are allowed the room to focus on. But when you look at something like Black Panther, that Mm. is a movie that maybe outside of the huge Marvel franchise... If someone wanted to make that, many people would tell them that's too niche that to make this movie is going to cost this many hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is with the budget is or was probably about 200 million. People aren't going to go and want to watch Black Panther and watch a black hero. The, the majority of the country isn't that. And so why would they care? Because it's not relevant to them. And so we won't make yeah. enough profit. So it's not worth making. And that just disproved, disproved a thousand times over. And it's it's about it's about choosing to invest in the things that makes them valuable. It's about knowing that there is value no matter what. Yeah. And it's how you invest. You could make Black Panther and not care about it at all. And it would be a bad movie. And so people wouldn't, you wouldn't make as much money because people wouldn't watch it or rewatch it or tell other people to go see it. Yeah. But instead... When you invest in the power and value of something in its authenticity, it thrives and it, it, it appeals to everyone. It has the potential to appeal to everyone. And yes. yeah, you can make your money on it. But what's even more important is you impact people's lives and communities who are so unseen and suppressed and need a hero and are struggling to be seen as heroes, which they are every day. And you won't put that on screen because you're going to get... $50 million less than you'd like to. I feel like you're, you're bringing up so many good points. And I, I, there's a few things that I, that I, you made me think of while you were saying that. And one, one of them is that a, you have to imagine that any of those things getting made, whether it's, I may destroy you, whether it's black Panther, you, you, we probably have no idea the years of battling that went on to get those things made. And how how almost impossible it probably was to do it, and the fact that they exist needs to be celebrated in and of itself. Um, and, and on top of it, they're fantastic. But it also it it also makes me think of when when I was um, I was being considered to uh, to host a, a, a show, and. I'm not going to name what that show is. Love Island, <laughs> not Love Island. Ah. Um, it was a show that you know centered gay uh, gay characters, and um, they needed somebody who uh, who knew the fashion industry well. Um, I was being considered for one of these hosting roles, and my standards when it came to only wanting to use fashion that was secondhand, um, sustainable, ethical, vegan, it really frightened them. And I think that was the reason I didn't get it because I posed a threat to their advertisers. What if we're going to get a paid spot from 
you know, XYZ retailer who uses sweatshop labor and you're going to refuse to work with them. And I said, you know, I'm sorry, there's some lines I won't cross, but I'll make it work. Like, do not, do not doubt that I can make this show work exactly wonderfully and better than anything you'd expect coming out of a big box store. And they just didn't want the risk. That's what I think. And then um, it also makes me think of years ago, years, it was 2004. I pitched a show with a friend. We developed a show called Veg Out and it was a vegan lifestyle TV show hosted by Tangerine, who is this like, she was a part of a group called the Vegan Vixens. And she was this fabulous like black, vegan, gorgeous model woman, so dynamic, oh, so amazing. Yes. And we were like, we have a show that's going to blow people's minds. It's, you know, it's hosted by Tangerine. It is about the vegan lifestyle. It's about food and fashion and travel and the, and the good life. And people, we went into meetings, we went into pitch meetings, and they looked at us like we were from another world. <laughs> 2004. They were just like, huh? Wow. Vegan? vegan like who the hell is gonna watch that and i mean we were way we were way too early i think but i'm just like had they taken the risk it would by now be you know a, a probably a very prominent and a, a show that that would be very successful there was one other show that it made me think of the controversy about the bachelor and how there had never been a black bachelor until whenever it was. I listened to a podcast on it. I don't watch the show. It was the shocking thing where there was a lawsuit because in 23 seasons of the show, there had never been a, 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 a black uh, bachelor or any bachelor of color or. Yeah. They'd never even like a chosen a person of color either. Every, Every Bachelor and Bachelorette and every person they chose was always white, except for one Filipino woman that was chosen by Sean well, Lowe. Like you know, only, only white people get married, right? But this is the thing, right? That's the message that it tells America and the world and whoever watches this show is that like, this is the story of love and romance and oh, the magic of finding your true someone belongs specifically in this space because after 23 years or 23 seasons of doing this show if we've not shown anyone else but one person out of hundreds and i don't even know how involved in the show that person was is isn't that somewhere where there should be a responsibility to do better and if the issue i might rant for a second about this so i i promise rant. i'll stop at some point do it. if the issue is that the people making the decisions of either casting or producing the show or deciding what it's going to look like, if they, there is no way that they look different to what the show looks like. And that is the fact. You get out what you put in. If you have 10, and this is not, I'm not criticizing anyone for being white. I never will. There's nothing wrong with it. I've said that before. Um, and this whole podcast is conversation over cancellation. That is the goal. And so this is the conversation that we're having. If you have 10 white people in a room making a show, it's not going to be a diverse show, uh, even if there's one black person in it or one Asian person in it or, or what, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the token number is that you put in. The show is only being made from one cultural perspective. Unless these are people who have invested in understanding different cultures and races and experiences of life, they don't have any other colors to offer to paint that canvas with. People of color and different cultures and ethnicities have existed 
the entire time you've been doing this show and yet only one has appeared, we're saying, in that whole time. I use this as an example because it happens time and time again. It's it definitely happens in Hollywood. Yes, it's getting better, of course, but as 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 we've we've covered already, proper change and permanent change and progress doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen in massive leaps. It happens step by step by step and then you have to solidify it. Yeah, and, and you're really I think you what you're pointing out um, perfectly is that um, white supremacy manifests throughout the culture in ways that are sometimes less obvious and sometimes less um, overt. And I think that when, when most people, people get really caught up on this idea of racism as being something that is about me calling you a name. And yes, that's one form of racism being, you know, being bigoted and, and, you know, going after someone for, for whatever reason, for how they look, for their skin color. But then there's other forms of white supremacy that operate in a much more systemic way that aren't as obvious. And this is one of them where we're we're shown that the neutral canvas for normalcy, the neutral canvas upon which life happens and which marriage happens and which, you know, romance manifests is a a white canvas. And, And that anything that departs from that is somehow uh, different or other. And we're just so comfortable and used to stories of romance and stories of uh, these, these broader cultural stories being told through the lens of, you know, of white people mm. that it doesn't even seem like there's anything wrong with it to, to a lot of people who are in those decision-making positions. It's important that, that we just always take account of how is systemic racism operating because it's operating in every system. It isn't just about people who are racist. It's about people who are participating in systems that were designed with in a time where where racism was just part of the structure of everything. And we're still, we're still dealing with those systems. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It means that you need to be aware that we're perpetuating harmful systems. Exactly. And thank you for saying that. It's it it's about becoming aware and, and learning to stay aware of systems that are designed to not include others. Uh, and that by doing that end up othering communities of people who they, you don't need to be other. There's nothing other about you. There's nothing other about me. But the reason that I'm having to use words like diverse and we talked about using the word ethnic uh, and the point was made, you know, everyone has an ethnicity, including people who are white. That doesn't mean anything to just use as a term for people of color. The only reason we even use words like that to describe people of color and communities of color is because we are participating in a system right now that is even language has been used to many degrees to other people and discriminate people and keep the doors closed on certain identities. And it's it's no one person's fault that is alive today, but it's everyone's responsibility and uh, should be everyone's human act and activity to collaborate 
in supporting our navigation of changing those systems, updating them at the very least, you know, like, yeah, stop shutting people out. It doesn't when you shut people out, you only gain a benefit for one privilege specific group, and that doesn't do anything for society. So we clearly, entertainment, Hollywood, TV, clearly there is an opportunity there to have an impact on the social consciousness of what behaviors we celebrate and adhere to. What you never see, I mean, maybe somewhere, I haven't watched everything ever, but generally speaking, you don't see people apologize Mm. in scripted or non-scripted television or film. Here's here's a pitch. Oh, so here, uh, so the show would be called The Big Apology, and it would be stories of people who've done something horrible, and they have maybe it's been years, maybe it's recent. They want to make you know they want to make an apology, but they don't know how, and the show follows them as they go to experts, psychologists, sociologists, and they learn how to craft the most perfect, beautiful apology. <laughs> And then they go and they deliver it to the person that needs to hear it. And maybe, can you see these goosebumps? Copyright, copyright it quick. Done, we're done. It's on the. It's, we're done. It. It's, it's Josh's oh, idea for the podcast. Okay. <laughs> and maybe the person rejects it because maybe what they did was unforgivable, and maybe they accept it, and maybe it's somewhere in between. But it's real, and maybe this is where we can have something that feels dramatic, that feels intense emotionally, but it's about de-escalating something. Josh, did you just birth an incredible show? Because I love that is the most powerful, simplest idea that literally does everything that we're talking about lacking in the industry. <laughs> I listen. You produce it, and I'll um, maybe you, you know. can host. We can get you that hosting job that you were denied. You'd be oh an amazing gosh. host. Well, let's let's co-host it, okay? Uh, whatever, whatever you want. Okay, we'll talk about this more. Have there been, and if so, what are the challenges you have experienced in the fashion industry that are specific to your identity? Mm, Yeah, I'll start with the internal battle that I had deciding to go into fashion because it's a cliche for a gay man to be in fashion. That was my first obstacle was getting over that and just being like, whatever, it's fine. And Part of it was probably some internalized homophobia and some internalized, you know, uh, desire to not be perceived as femme because that was the reason I was bullied because I was perceived as femme when I was a kid. And I did, I put in a lot of work. Who, who I am today is a little bit more masculine and and I'm happy with that. But I always wonder, like, who would I have been if my femme attributes were celebrated and encouraged rather than shut down and and frightened. And I probably, uh, a lot of my masculinity is an armor. It's, you know, to protect myself in a culture that sees masculinity as strength and as threatening, where I can protect myself with that, whereas femininity is seen as weak and vulnerable. And that's, you know, there's a whole load of problems with that. Pop culture uh, representations of queer men, uh, of queer people are very stereotyped 
and almost, you know, caricatures, almost comic relief, it's silly, not serious. Um, they are, they're just, you know, I don't have to tell you. And, uh, you know, like, where is our, ser- there, there are independent films and independent projects where gay characters are, are taken seriously and are serious people, but overwhelmingly in pop culture, uh, gay characters are just, you know, there to be lampooned, there to be uh, the clown, the jester. And, um, and I think that that makes, that makes people feel safe because it's, identifiable like when you're so clearly gay then i feel safe because i can see you coming what you just said about wearing that as an armor because you're in amazing shape and i know that you've like done crossfit and things like that was there any fact of what you just said that was part of your decision to affect your physical appearance or absolutely yeah i think that when i would i I grew up reading comic books also and you know you see these these massive muscular heroes who, who are powerful. And I think that our, our definition of mainstream masculinity is so tied up in brutality and in physical strength. Whereas um, things like compassion and kindness and empathy are seen as weak. And so, yeah, I think that wanting to be perceived as physically strong is not only a deterrent from people who would physically want to attack me, but just a feeling of wearing an armor in a culture that perceives that armor as a form of power. And I believe that that is part of the reason why I'm so motivated to stay physically fit is because I feel protected and safe inside this. And I I appreciate you sharing that. And I understand too, because I've not that I'm in incredible shape, but my motivation to want to be in shape and be fit, aside from health and feeling really good, uh, mainly is how seriously I'm going to be taken and how much of a voice I'm going to be allowed to have in the room or how much visibility I'm going to be allowed as an actor, even in the industry, is going to be based on how people physically perceive me and my power and my importance. I I think that that also made me think about how brave people who express their visual identity as femme have to be in our culture. Yes. That people who really embrace the femme and express the femme and live that truth and express that truth and do it fearlessly and boldly. And maybe they're not doing it fearlessly. Maybe they're just doing it boldly. That is so brave. And I admire that so much. Maybe it's wrong to look at it as something that is even a choice. Maybe they just, that is who they are and that is how they have to express themselves. And that is the only way that they can be true and happy. But it still requires bravery and and boldness in a culture that that really threatens femininity with violence and um, and with death and with hatred. Um, That, yeah, I applaud everyone who who embraces the femme and expresses the femme because um, it's dangerous. There's two different kinds of fashion that I talk about. There's fashion with a capital F, which is like the fashion industry, which is, you know, heritage brands and luxury and um, advertising and celebrities and the Met Gala, you know, all these things that are like fashion with a capital F. And then there's just fashion, which is really... Uh, more ephemeral. It's it's what's happening. It, Coco Chanel has a really great quote about fashion being more than just dresses. It's 
it's in the air it's it's how we do things it's the style it's the activities it's everywhere it's just a way of being mm. and you can look at fashion from that sense too before we we talked about uh people being femme or more femme presenting and especially queer figures uh say in hollywood for one example and there being a one very singular strong sense of their portrayal as queer people and yeah it's one i personally i don't feel like i i don't feel responsible claiming to identify authentically in that one vision uh, because I believe it belongs to some people. It, it's not mine or it's not the wholeness of me or it doesn't feel like a responsible idea to give someone of my authentic self. Mm -hmm. But I do find that there's very little room, not necessarily when it comes to the scope of fashion because fashion does provide for, uh, like you're saying, a fluidity of all natures and things. Yet the way it's applied doesn't always feel that way to me. It's, yeah, the way that it's applied is very disconnected from the truth about fashion. It's similar to, to the food. If you, think about, if you think about the food system, you could have, um, you could go to a restaurant and you could eat a very delicious dish. But then if you decide to find out how that dish was made, where it came from, what went into its production, suddenly your understanding of whether that was a good meal might completely change, right? And so the same, the same principle applies to fashion. And I think that as we work towards a more honest and transparent fashion system, it's going to confront a lot of cherished traditions and a lot of uh, things that we take for granted. And especially our delusion that beauty is goodness, that pretty things means that it was made in a pretty way. And that I think is a cultural hump that we really, really have to get over. That just because something looks nice doesn't mean that it's good. That's something that affects, I think a lot, a lot of different areas, um, not just fashion, but as I said, you know, food and, and probably other things too. But we have a tendency as human animals to gravitate towards beauty and symmetry and things that make us feel good and things that uh, flatter our egos and things that are just, you know, tactile and nice to touch and nice to look at. And that too often overpowers our idea of what is good and bad, because you could look at a fur coat and say, this is soft, this is pretty, this is warm, and therefore this is good. But if you look at a factory fur farm and you see what's happening to the living beings that are horribly confined to cages, that are languishing, that are suffering, that are killed in the most horrific ways, whether it's you know anal or vaginal electrocution or gassing or being bludgeoned, even just the confinement in and of itself, the suffering that goes on, suddenly, if that is factored into whether or not this is a pretty garment, a good garment, I don't know if we can say that's good anymore. What does good design mean today? And I think that we have to change what good design means as our understanding changes. The people in power and the systems that are in place 
they resist that change. But those of us who can envision a better world, who can articulate a, um, a new way of doing things, a new way of living, I think that for us, we have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And sometimes we have to shove. And maybe sometimes we have to hit in order to really get that change to move forward. Does that sound like I'm advocating for violence? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes we have to hit. We have to hit each other in the face. We're so used to apologizing for wanting to be ethical that we immediately kind of take that stand. So I think what we have to do as, as people who are in the creative industries is figure out language and images and stories that are impossible to ignore, that excite people, that are enticing and sexy and cool and and intoxicating. Let me ask you about identity representation in fashion. Let's do it. Do you think that there's a disconnect between where we're at as a society and the room that fashion allows for proper freedom of identity and self-expression? I think it's a complicated question, but I think that fashion, as most people understand it today, has much more to do with visual identity than it has to do with anything else. And part of that is good. Part of that is empowering. If I can represent myself visually, outwardly, the way that I feel inside, if I can put on armor that makes me feel protected, if I can put on something that unveils or reveals how I see myself or how I feel about myself or others, these are, I mean, it can be as simple as wearing a band t-shirt for a band that you like, and that communicates to other people what, you know, I like this band. And if they like the band too, like, you know, this is, this is visual communication. Uh, When we get into this 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 realm of luxury fashion, red carpets, award shows, like the fantasy, the opulence. Then we start dealing with a, a bit of a different form of fashion where a lot of it is meant to be otherworldly, spellbinding. It's about power. It's about access to things that other people can't have and creating a persona that is almost godlike because it is visually so different and so opulent and, and, and representing access to things that most people don't have access to. It's about that exclusivity. Pay attention to the word exclusivity because we use it kind of, um, we use it casually, but it's about excluding. It's not just when you're exclusive, you are excluding others. And so exclusive fashion is about only a very small handful of people having access to it. And making sure that most others don't have access to it. And in, in doing that, there's power. And you can look at like fashion from the, uh, the Middle Ages, like what, what royalty in Europe would wear. And those, those outfits were literal representations of having access to trade routes and having skilled laborers and having, having all of this kind of imperial power and when when you see like a painting of louis the 14th in his ermine cape and that cape is made of hundreds of ermine and every one of those little black tufts think think about the the stereotype of like 
a king or a queen wearing fur. Usually it's that white fur with the little black dots on it, right? Mm-hmm. Those black dots, those are tails. And the animal is ermine. So every one of those dots is a tail. So these are garments that are made from like hundreds of small animals. And the only way to get those animals when they're white with their black tails is to hunt them in like near Arctic, near the Arctic Circle. So for European royalty to have access to that means that they have access to trade routes and they have access to skilled hunters. And so this becomes a literal interpretation of power, of royal power. So that is where a lot of our ideas about luxury um, fashion comes from. It comes from uh, European royalty, which is really kind of, you know, fucked up when you think about everything else that European royalty represents and all, you know, all of the other problems associated. So, um, wow, that's fascinating. And also it, it seems that that would suggest that the roots of fashion and especially luxury fashion aren't necessarily that open to different cultures or different communities, ideas of luxury, Uh, because luxury is a relative term, right? Yeah, luxury is relative, and who who controls who controls what is perceived as luxury is basically who controls what is seen as valuable. And while there are things that are precious and cherished among many different cultures for uh, you know to wear on the body, to adorn the body, to decorate, to you know, have a relationship with the otherworldly or, you know, with nature or with animals or with each other, there are, there is a complex web of ways of that human beings have expressed themselves and visually represented themselves throughout history. But it, unfortunately, the dominating culture is the one that has done the most to conquer and, and kill everyone else Mm -hmm. and, uh, and establish that, um, that definition of power and people aspire towards that definition of power. I mean, I'm speaking in very broad strokes and in generalities. So there's always exceptions to the rule. What I will say is that more recently, I think being different is, is celebrated and that's a very fresh and nice thing that's happened where being an individual, expressing your individuality through personal style, um, that is celebrated more. Even even though sometimes the attempts at actually being legitimately individual are being marketed by these big box stores that are the are the first that are the furthest thing from you know from individuality. They're they're mass produced, um, often in horrific ways, uh, but. When it comes down to fashion and identity, um, I think that what I want to have happen, what I believe will happen, is that when we represent ourselves through fashion, if it's only about the aesthetics, we're missing a huge part of the opportunity. If I put on an outfit and it's, you know, a biker jacket and a pair of jeans and a pair of black boots and I'm like, you know, I'm living my James Dean fantasy and I, you know, I'm, I'm the I'm the rebel with the motorcycle and, you know, the kind of rock and roll kind of rebellious. You can you can achieve that with aesthetics alone. But is there anything that's truly rebellious about leather and the leather industry? Is there anything that is really counterculture about an industry that is so, so ingrained 
in a really old fashioned way of doing things that isn't innovative and isn't exciting and isn't countercultural. What would happen if we aligned our values, not just with the way something looked, but with the way something was made? I think that that is the direction that we have to go in with fashion, where you show up in your outfit and you're ready to talk, not just about how you look, but how it was made, who made it, who was compensated, who was empowered, what, 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 what are the materials, what boundaries are being pushed, not just visually and representationally, but what boundaries are being pushed with actual systems? Mm. Are you pushing the system boundaries with your outfit, not just are you pushing representational boundaries? That's so interesting. I think of awards shows and I think of actors, uh, all people from the industry turning up on the red carpet and being asked, who are you wearing? That's like the question everyone around the world is familiar with. Who are you wearing? As if that's the point and only point to the quality of their, how they are dressed. Right. And in fact, what you're saying has immense value, I think, for everyone to pay attention to. Imagine if the question was not who are you wearing, but how was this made? I have to say, I have been very fortunate to experience exactly what you said, getting to know what it feels like to have a name that you feel is synonymous with all the value of what it is you're wearing with Brave Gentleman, your brand. You, oh, well, I mean, you are a clear and perfect example of everything that you just said. And I know I have felt that when someone has asked me about one of your suits and like, oh, what suit is that? Uh, and then I can say, rather than just who are you wearing? And uh, there's a name and then it's done. And it's kind of just for vanity's sake. It's, it's a conversation that fascinates someone and it's educational. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. When somebody finds out that I'm in fashion, they'll say, they'll say something like, oh, can you like help me pick out an outfit? Or like, how do I look? And I'm like, that's not what I do. <laughs> that's not like, that's the association with fashion that I'm going to be like this, this like sassy gay who's going to like snap my fingers and, and, you know, and whip you, whip you up a nice, a nice outfit. Right. And that's so far from, from what, what I want to be doing. I, I identify more as like a, a fashion futurist or Ooh. a cultural critic or an activist than you know, just a, a fashion guy or a fashion gay. I named the brand Brave Gentleman and I refer to it as menswear, but I think menswear it is, is an aesthetic and I wish I could call it something else. Masculine aesthetics are aesthetics that can be appreciated by anybody who likes masculine aesthetics. And I think that Brave Gentleman is for everybody who likes classic menswear aesthetics and I try to offer sizing that, especially when I do pre-orders, because I'm a small brand, what happens is it's really expensive to run sizes that are not common. Mm. So often what I'm doing is I'm spending my budget on the most common like footwear sizes that I know will sell. Because if I, if I order really small or really large foot sizes, I know that what's going to happen is a lot of them are not going to sell. And then I've blown my budget 
on um, something that I'm not going to get a return and I won't be able to then grow my business. So the, the, the bad thing about that is you have underserved people who have different body types and different foot sizes and you know, whether it's, whether it's, you know, somebody who's, who loves masculine aesthetics, who has really small feet, or whether it's somebody who, you know, needs a really good pair of dress shoes and they have a size like 15 or 16 foot. I, I, I wish that I just was able to run every size and every color and every style. And I think there's a disconnect that people have understanding how businesses operate and how budgets work and how things are made. And, they just think it kind of appears and you can make any size or any color you want. Um, but unfortunately, for a small brand like mine, I have to make really strategic decisions. So what I do is I offer um, pre-sales. I do pre, pre-orders. So I'll get my new samples. I'll do a photo shoot. I'll set up the store. And then I'll have a small window of time that people can order any size they want. And there are limits even with that. Like the factory that I work with can only make up to like a size 14 shoe. Mm. And so people who have a larger foot than that, like it just won't happen unless I have a, like a cobbler make you a custom shoe, which is going to cost thousands of dollars. So in those pre-order windows, I'm able to offer at least smaller size for, you know, for women who like menswear for, for maybe for trans guys who, um, who have smaller feet for any, anybody who likes menswear style shoes that has a smaller foot, I'll do like down to a size 36 in Euro, which is like, um, a women's, a women's six or seven. So in that brave gentleman is, it's not about being just, just for men. Um, or ju- just for uh, masculine presenting people. It's it's for anybody who likes those aesthetics, and that's that. I think that you don't need to de- you don't need to have those definitions. Um, I think that that's something that's falling away in fashion. I think gender gender neutral fashion is the future, and having this separation between men's and women's and boys and girls fashion is. It just doesn't speak to the times. It's not today. Um, and it, it fails a lot of people. It forces people into boxes. And it uh, it's restricting. Um, I, I, used to, <laughs> I used to wonder as a kid, like, why is my sister, quote unquote, allowed to wear my clothes, but I'm not allowed to wear hers? And I, that always puzzled me. I remember watching her like ride down the street on my bicycle and think that that looked totally normal. Here's my sister riding my boy's bike. But if I wanted to take her sparkly pink bike with, you know, with all of these like (laughs) frills on it, that that would be looked at as something bad. And I couldn't really wrap my head around that. I just was like, why is there this double standard? Why, why is femme, why is femme aesthetics not for everyone, but masculine aesthetics is for everyone. If someone who did feel that way, what you just described was listening, what would your message be to them or what and how would you communicate to them? I would just say that it's uh, power dynamics are constantly shifting and there's no reason that femme aesthetics shouldn't be empowering and shouldn't be powerful. And 
it's not up to other people to decide what makes you feel good, what makes you feel empowered. Uh, unfortunately, we live in we live in a world where the, those things can be risky. You can risk your personal safety and your personal health through just trying to be yourself, through just trying to be happy and empowered and express how you feel. And so I say to those people, you know, more power to you. Let's let's redefine what those things are. Let's keep pushing those boundaries and let's protect each other because it is risky and it is dangerous, unfortunately, because there's hateful, horrible people in the world who want to shut it down and are willing to do awful things to shut that down. So we have to hold each other up. We have to protect each other and love each other. And um, and and that's it. Like there, there shouldn't be more to it than that. Um, but it, it's something that really touches the core of masculine insecurity and masculinity is so narrowly defined and so limiting and so stifling that if you stray from it in the slightest, if you don't have like, you know, makeup marketed to you as, you know, war paint, or if you don't have, you know, soy milk marketed to you as like protein drink, like somehow you're going, you're, you're going to have, you're going to lose, you're going to lose something about yourself that, that is losing power and losing control and losing the rewards of what masculinity offers in a patriarchal culture. Those rewards um, don't come to you if you give them up. What needs to change, if anything? What do people need to keep in mind? What is important to remember? I think we are told that we're not to be participants. We're to be consumers. We're to be receptacles. We're not supposed to affect change in systems. That that's reserved for a very small handful of like ruling class people. And I think that wanting to make that change and feeling like I have good ideas and that I want to see justice and I want to see innovation that is working towards a better world and knowing that that it's possible that's what that's what keeps me going that's why i'm doing it because i know that a better world is possible i know that a fashion industry that doesn't hurt animals that empowers people that can actually work with the ecosystems to not cause so much harm this is not fantasy. This is real. If we can get behind that and allow it to thrive, those are the systems that are just going to keep on going. And they're designed to protect themselves. You know, infinite growth at any cost and maximum profits with minimal, you know, minimal costs. And all of these, these ideas are, uh, they're, they're incredibly harmful and, and things can be different. You are a shining example of what it is to be a human being. My favorite thought from all of that is that in a large sense, everything you do is for the little femboy called Josh and for all others alike out there who know that there is a real world that exists that often isn't seen and you're doing everything that you can to help not just show it to people, but guide the way. And I think that's one of the most valuable, important activities that you can participate in. So 
thank you on behalf of everyone, whether they know it or not. And I love you and you're wonderful. And thank you for being oh, on the show. Thank you. Love you too. I'll just leave people with uh, what happens to animals in the fashion industry is unimaginable and horrific. And if people could see and hear what was happening just to make a leather bag or a fur trim collar, they would choose something else. These things are hidden for a reason. And just, just keep that in mind. And here you are. You've reached the end of yet another open up. Congratulations to you. And I hope that you learned a lot because there was definitely a lot there to pick up on. Just a couple little closing thoughts from me. How often does reality TV really highlight important social issues? How much is it feeding the best of us? Also, personal thought, maybe all reality shows around love and attraction and romance, maybe there's enough straight ones. Maybe, you know, 20 different shows about men meeting women and women meeting men is great. And maybe there's a bit more room for, you know, some other communities who are also human and care about love and attraction and desire. Maybe that's not too taboo to make a show. Anyway, just a thought. I mean, much more than a thought. It's ridiculous that that doesn't exist more than it does. But hey, trying to be polite. Um, and speaking of TV, if anyone is interested or excited by Josh's pitch for The Big Apology, it is officially on the podcast now. So he's made it known and claimed it as his. Maybe let us know in uh, the reviews, leave a comment or get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about that. Is that a show that you would like to see? Do you agree with the themes behind it, those ideas? Maybe a little bit of energy. Who knows? Might make something happen. What's most important to us, the name on a label or the names of the materials that we are covering ourselves in and the impact that they have on the world? I agree with Josh's belief that gender-neutral fashion is the future. I think that's something to just underline. And diverse sizing being more expensive doesn't seem that inclusive. So maybe that's something to focus on as well. And finally, I do think it's really important for us to allow each other to operate and live outside of the narrow, narrow boxes of masculinity and femininity. We gain nothing by limiting each other to behavioral boxes. To expect people to behave a certain way based off of completely irrelevant facts, information, or assumptions does not move anything forward for ourselves or each other. So if you're a little more femme, a little more mask, whatever those terms mean relative to the environment that you're in, just be you and let other people be themselves. That's no threat to you other than whatever insecurities you might have in yourself. And we all have them, but we do nothing helpful by putting those on other people. Let people be, let people live, let people love. And thank you. If you want to follow Josh, he is at Joshua underscore catcher on Instagram. And you can also check out circumfauna.org for some of the future fashion materials that are going to be heading your way very soon, whether you know it or not. And also his book, Fashion Animals, for more information on the history of the abuse and use of animals in fashion over the years. 
If you want to get in touch with us, we are at the Open Up Pod on the gram and hello at theopenuppodcast.com on email. You can also help us spread the word by opening up about what you heard. And if you want to help keep the show alive, please hit those stars right now at number five. And don't forget to leave us a review because we would love to hear from you and about your thoughts of the big apology and everything else in this episode and any other episodes that you have enjoyed. And of course, thank you to our wonderful Open Up family of diverse artists who make the podcast possible. Alec Liu brings our artwork. Adsum brings our theme music. Jay Abhol brings our additional music. I'm Elliot Knight, your host, mixer, and editor. And of course, thank you to producer Gemma and Studio Hendrix for making this all possible. We love you and thank you for being here. You are a part of this family. We're over halfway through season one and we have some cracking episodes to close everything up. So we hope that you stay with us for the rest of that. Thank you for being here. Take care of yourself. Be well if you are. Get well if you're not. And we'll see you next time for another Open Up. The paradox of tolerance states that if a society is tolerant without limit, its ability to be tolerant is eventually seized or destroyed by the intolerant. Well, that's not what you said. I mean, it's what you said, but you know what I mean? The, the, the wording is very different and more complex. I feel like mine was a lot more spot on, but that's okay. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a competition, and I'm glad that you know that. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> um, um, what time? I got to go. <laughs>